Ladies and gentlemen and corner kick fam, welcome in. It is the uh, a rarity in these parts, a midweek recording here. Wait, but did you just say Vilkovin on purpose? Or I or said well you... I said welcome in. I think you said welcome, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, I, I heard Vilkovin. I thought it was a reference to the like comment. Oh yeah, Vilkovin. Beyond to And cabaret. But yeah. no, my name is oh. Nathan Strauss, and uh, we're joined now by a man who did not post a tweet welcoming in his club's new manager in a completely different language than the language that manager speaks. It is Nick Avinden. Bienvenido, <laughs> corner kick, Antonio Conte. Yeah, that was, uh, of all the Spursy moments that have gone on in the past four to five months, I have to say that ranks quite high on the list. If you didn't catch it, <laughs> when Tottenham were, you know, unveiling in, in the, the beginning stages of unveiling Antonio Conte as a new coach at the beginning of this week, which we will discuss, <laughs> they posted a tweet, <laughs> which has since been removed, that said, had a picture of Conte holding up the Spurs jersey saying, Bienvenido, <laughs> which obviously is not Italian, which is Conte's native uh, tongue. So, yes, very, very Spurs moment there to kick off our week. Yeah, so you need to work on say- their, uh, their diversity, equity, and inclusion of Italians at that club. It's pretty clear. Right. So you would um, say the last four to five months, I would say, you know, the last 120 years. But well, we're I was also just talking to- about the managerial search. Oh, we're also joined by a man who is not uh, currently being, you know, trapped in Qatar while his former club is trying to bring him back as manager. It is Caleb Rhodes. Uh, yes, thankfully. Well, I think in order to qualify all of these things, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty bizarre last nine days worth of soccer, like both in fulfilling and unfulfilling ways, but there's only one place to start. And that would be with the Spurs United match this last weekend that ended up maybe being the largest Pyrrhic victory of all time for United. (laughs) Like, I'm not even kidding when I say that, like, this could have been the best match to summarize Ole's reign. It was a game which United won without playing particularly well, in which Spurs performed so poorly that their fans started booing Harry Kane. Harry Kane... And also chirping their own manager, singing, you don't know what you're doing. Oh, well, their own former manager. And of course, within 24 hours, Nuno Espirito Santo, the uh, third choice manager from this last summer's managerial carousel, uh, departed after just 10. Was he as high practice. as third? I feel like he was like seventh choice. Like, I'm not I even think, kidding. Yeah, around fifth to seventh choice. Well, at the end of the day, Spurs acted with uh, much aplomb and wound up appointing Antonio Conte, who for the previous week and a half was like waiting by the fax machine for United to send over the paperwork. So all in all, where we are left is that United are, um, you know, now, you know, forced to continue to back Ole. um, And then they drew, they drew in midweek after a sort of miraculous Ronaldo late volleyed winner. Um, Spurs are now, I would say considerably below the quality of team that Conte has normally thrived in. Um, but all in all, it's just like very funny to watch unfold from the outside. 
I'm actually yeah. not so sure about that, but we can get into you know how how this con- this team is going to set up under Antonio Conte. I actually think on paper the Spurs team is quite good, and I think there's a lot of players here that Conte can get up to the level if they buy into his system. But that's a completely other question since Spurs players and uh, <laughs> management have not seemed to have been able to get along for the better part of three years now. Um, I I think just on a on a united level. Right now, uh, Ole's in the in the three games that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has been given to save his job, he has gone one and one, and the last one remaining is Man City this Saturday upcoming. So that I think will be the true test for for Ole and Co. and the United Board as well. But if you look at you know the Super League six, you know formerly the Big Six of the Premier League, and who's managing them right now, it's Jurgen Klopp, Pep Guardiola, Thomas Tuchel. Mikel Arteta, Antonio Conte, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Two of those are not like the other, except for Mikel Arteta actually has been, you know, I think coming into his own as a coach. So very, very interesting at the, you know, the echelons of the Premier League. But I think this, the Conte appointment is both the best managerial appointment I've seen in a while and also by far the silliest. <laughs> just considering where we were three months ago when it was muted that Conte was, you know, Fabio Paratici's the sporting director of Spurs, his priority um, in terms of managers he wanted to appoint. At that point, Conte didn't look like he was ready to come in. Certain assurances about transfers and other things, you know, weren't where he wanted them to be. So he declined the offer. And I guess that, you know, gave him enough leverage for when Tottenham came around this week to come sign him. You know they were able to come to a certain agreement. He's only been given an 18th month con- an 18 month contract, which is kind of short. You know, given you know, the contracts for managers, he's been given an incredible wage though at 15 million a year. So there are from Daniel Levy and Parathici some confidence that Conte is going to come in here and do the business. And why wouldn't they? This man is a serial winner. You know, he's one of the top five best coaches in the world, and just coming fresh off of winning a title with Inter Milan and Caleb, I think from his time at Chelsea in the Premier League, you know, the Victor Moses era, some call it. This is someone you can do quite a lot with, you know, uh, players who have been seen to be, you know, underperforming or under par. So I think this is kind of the perfect manager for Tottenham at this time. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to talk about here. And I think this game gives us a lot of access because obviously Conte was very much mooted to go to Manchester United as well, assuming that Ole was going to get sacked. And, you know, as I texted you guys before this game, Ole kind of preempted that a little bit by setting his team up in a very uh, Conte-like 3-5-2. But sticking with Spurs, I mean, this was one of the most abject soccer performances I've ever seen. I don't know how you have 60% possession, which they did. They had that much possession, but they were unable to put a single shot on target. And this is not the first time this year that Spurs have struggled to create any real chances. I think they're pretty much dead last in the league or maybe just above you know, Norwich in terms of total shots on target and chances created this year. So they have been anemic offensively this year, even though we know that Son and Kane can do the business. I guess my question is, you know, It seems that part of the reason Conte came now is he was able to get, I think, a bigger salary than Tottenham were initially 
offering. And I think the concession he gave to Spurs was perhaps the shorter contract so that if things don't work out, they don't owe him, you know, like 25 million or something like that. But my question is, how do you guys actually see him setting up this team? I think Spurs are one of the few teams in like the big six um, or big seven, you know, in England that I haven't really seen try a back three all that often. Is this, you know, the team that Conte is going to stick with something like a four, two, three, one. How do you guys see that playing out? And who is like the Victor Moses of this team? So I have a couple of theories about this. And first of all, I do think that like maybe I was being overly harsh to Spurs um, when I said that they were a quality below that with which he's been used to working. But I do think that that personnel wise, there are some interesting fits. And I think that this could be, you know, his traditional, you know, three, five, two could actually be really serviceable for someone like Dele Ali, you know, who could end up playing that that number 10 role. The only two players though, who I think are, are locked into this formation would be Harry Kane and Huynh Son, who should both start up top. Like that should be your strike pair, um, you know, over and out. Not Pierre Emil Hoiberg and Sergio Reguillon. I think those two would thrive. I mean, I think, I, I think they, I think they, I think they will as well. And I think Christian Romero will work well in a back three, but it's the kind of thing where it makes me really wonder, you know, what would, what, I mean, the left wing back role, like what if Ryan Sessegnon were fit? Like, could he play that at all? Um, I mean, obviously Reguillon is going to make a really good fit there as well. The big issue for me is right wing back um, because it's not as if Spurs have been excellent down the right so far. I don't think Tanganga offers anything going forward. Um, they do obviously have Emerson Royale who has been fine um, so far, but all in all, I, you know, could Ndombele surface as that number 10 instead of Delhi. I'm sort of just, I have a hard time believing that a team that has scored, um, you know, the second fewest goals in the league, the only team they've scored more than is Norwich, who have scored three through 10 matches. I have a hard time in believing that on an 18 month deal, Conte is going to somehow be mm-hmm. able to like, coach the spursiness out of this team um and if he proves me wrong i I will gladly eat my words because i really do respect him as a coach but this squad is just all over the place and in a way i think nick you as a liverpool fan and and me as an arsenal fan should be pretty thankful that he ends up at spurs and not united which i think has a squad that is significantly more ready to compete for a title I agree yeah. in certain parts. I, I also think that some of the players in this team are tailor-made for what Conte wants to do. Conte, among other things, you know, he's he's an incredibly savvy tactician. The man is an effort merchant, you know, art- articulated perfectly by that quote that he gave to Thierry Henry when he was at Chelsea, when he said when like a player doesn't, you know, train for him in training, he'd rather quote unquote kill them. So there are gonna be players who he's gonna clear out. You know, I think if like Serge Aurier was still at the club, you know, he'd be gone today, for example. And I think this is going to ask big questions of, you know, Deli Ali, as you were saying, Nathan. And I think also, you know, the Eric Dyers of the world, right? Who there's a lot of players on the Tottenham payroll who I think regardless of the coach, whether it's been Mourinho, whether it's been, whether it's been Mason and whether it's been Nuno, who really have just not put, you know, their entire 100% effort behind the Tottenham project. And I think bringing in someone 
like Conte, who for lack of a better word, is a bit of a totalitarian when it comes to his approach to coaching the team. You know, that that's not to say that he doesn't cultivate relationships with players. You know, his relationships with, you know, Pogba and Lukaku and Pirlo and, you know, particularly that Italian national team that he coached that were kind of, you could say, like quality-wise below par, you know, the Graziano Pella team. Like that, he's developed relationships with, with all of those teams and all of those players. But he is a bit of a dictator when it comes to these sort of things. So what Tottenham need to do in order to get the most out of him is just get out of his way. If you're Paratici, you probably know that from working with him at Juventus. But if you're Daniel Levy, like you need to get out of you get out of this man's way and let him do what he needs to do with this team. But I think players like Hoybier and even someone like Harry Kane and especially Hunman Zahn, who is like a professional's professional, are going to thrive under the challenge of working for Antonio Conte. No, I mean, like one thing that makes this move interesting to me is I feel like more than ever before, Antonio Conte is truly like betting on himself. Like in terms yes. of recruitment, he is a bigger draw than Tottenham Hotspur in general, but also like in its current state. And I am kind of curious, like who he thinks he's going to be able to get. Obviously there are some key pieces from the inter team um, that were mooted, you know, over the summer when he was originally going to come like Latara or even Barella. But I think the issue is he might struggle a little bit in recruitment, but at the same time, I think he's incredibly confident that people will come to like work for him and, you know, whoever those people end up being, I think it'll probably bode well for Tottenham's performance on the pitch. And then also just one one more personnel note. Um, I think Emerson might be one of the players who also will really thrive if they go to a sort of five at the back formation, because, you know, he really made his name, I would say, playing in that position for Real Betis. So a switch back to that could, you know, play to his talents as well. I think on like Caleb's point, like this very few times has a Tottenham managerial appointment been like a real statement. You know, like Pochettino wasn't exactly a statement. Andre Villas-Boas was coming off of a like really torrid time as the Chelsea manager. Um, Jose Mourinho was on the decline and we all kind of knew what direction that way was going. Ryan Mason was Ryan Mason and Nuno, you know, as Caleb already said, was around like... (laughs) 17th choice to take this job in July. Conte is an appointment that when I heard that this was happening, like got me to sit up and be like, oh shit, like he's coming back to the Premier League. Like this is, you know, it is a bit cliche and I think I've said it already. The man wins. The man just wins and he wins period and he wins everywhere he goes. And so I think there there is a question, Nathan, about whether or not like he can, you know, him himself, you know, the personality that he is, the coach that he is, can overcome <laughs> years yeah. of spursiness. But if there's anyone who's going to be able to do it, it is, you know, Antonio MF and Conte. Yeah, I think the other thing is that this 18 months is probably I think it probably aligns pretty well with the first stages of decline for this current group of Spurs players. And by current group of Spurs players, I mean primarily the spine of the team. So Hugo Lloris, um, Hugo Lloris, Harry Kane, and Quinn Son. Obviously, Kane is now 28. So when this contract expires, he will be you know a month away from turning 30. Son will be a month away from turning 31. So I do think it sets a bit of a timeline for Spurs to figure out 
um, you know, to try and win that trophy or to try and, uh, you know, strengthen this team because Spurs in the last two years were, were already one of the most front-loaded teams out there in terms of over-reliance on two players. Um, on the other hand, if there's anything that does go in Spurs' favor is that they do not play a big six team until December 19th. Uh, they play Leicester on the 16th. So basically, until then, Spurs have Vitesse, Everton, Leeds, Murrah, Burnley, Brentford, Norwich, Wren, and Brighton. That's basically, I mean, in my mind, that is as favorable uh, a nine-game run as you can get when you're also playing in European competition. So if they can, you know, identify targets to bring in in January, put together a decent run of form to get them, you know, above ninth where they are right now, then I'll take them a lot more seriously. But, um, you know, I think, again, this might end up being one of those situations where, great managers are sort of proved wrong by circumstances within the squad. So that's sort of where I'm going to leave that. But I'm curious if you guys would be willing now to move on to the United aspect of things, because as important an appointment this is for Spurs, I well, think it is equal. Oh. I think the other side of that coin, Nathan, which you kind of alluded to is that not only is the Spurs team kind of coming to a nexus point, Conte also does not last long. Right. He doesn't clubs. stay for more than three years ever. So I think this is, you know, as much of a win now situation as we've seen at Tottenham since I think a long time in like the Levy era, perhaps. You know, this is the most money that he's put into a team, you know, with the likes of Ndombele, Lachelso, who we haven't even talked about. Know how he's going to fit into this Conte team, and obviously, you know, Kane and Son and Loris, as you said, and they shield out 50 million on Christian Romero to, to bolster the squad as well. This team is going to need investment, and if you're Daniel Levy, you can't. This cannot be another Pochettino situation where he just relies on the skills of the coach and doesn't reinforce the team in the transfer market. Like he needs to do both at this juncture. So a lot of this isn't just going to fall on Conte and the players. A lot of this is going to fall on Paratici and Levy in the boardroom and in recruitment as well. Now I think it's now I think let's talk about what it means for United because I think that there's a decent chance, maybe even a good chance, that if Spurs had somehow won this game, Ole would have been sacked. Um, and instead, he turns in a result that is far more convincing on paper than it was, you know, on the pitch and keeps his job before his United team uh, demonstrate the exact same frailties that they have under his entire reign um, in the Champions League yesterday evening. So, Caleb, I know we talked about it a little bit, but mm. this was... Uh, again, I really do think this was just such a Pyrrhic victory for United. Oh, yeah. I mean, when, when a coach who doesn't normally play a three-at-the-back formation switches to a three-at-the-back formation, that usually suggests that they know that they're in trouble. I've seen it a lot in Barcelona managers over the past few years. It does not really solve that many issues. Um, and at the end of the day, they proved to be fairly reliant on Ronaldo individual moments of brilliance again, which I just don't buy is going to save Ole or lead this club to sort of durable success. Um, and just looking at who they have in their squad, you know, 
this formation is not going to work that well going forward. With Varane out for a month now, Bailly is going to have to be drafted into this team, but then they have pretty much, to my knowledge, no other first-team center backs in the squad. So are you really going to play your only center backs to start every game? There's still no real position for several of the midfielders, including Donny Van de Beek, and perhaps most importantly, their real marquee signing or their initial marquee signing of the summer, Jaden Sancho, has no obvious place in this team and didn't even make it off the bench, um, even as you know Marcus Rashford and Jesse Lingard got off the bench. So yeah, this is a Pyrrhic victory. They needed to win. Um, they won. But more than anything, this was probably a, ultimately a death sentence for Man U because it meant that Conte is not going to manage them now. Um, and I think that's this is going to prove to be one of those sort of inflection points in the timeline that we'll look back to. And I think it, it only leads to some pretty dark places for this squad. And I think, Nathan, can we get into the Champions League results? Yeah, I think, with- I think we should because it's impossible to look at United this last weekend without seeing them yesterday. Yeah, and and you know, for context, they rolled out the same back three, back five against Atalanta away. The only change they made, I think, was bringing in Marcus Rashford for Edinson Cavani, and they looked awful. They looked abject against a team that was as organized and as disciplined as Atalanta in the many ways that Tottenham were not, you know, on the weekend, and they got really exposed, you know, particularly by a player as as crafty as Divan Zapata. And I think uh, a manager like Gasparini, who knows how to set up a team defensively, knows how to give a team a lot of structure in a lot of ways where Ole, it just looked like he was kind of trying to fit pegs and holes that occasionally weren't there and rely a lot on the individual quality of his team. And if a lot of this sounds familiar, it's because we've talked about this on this podcast about you know eight to 10 times at this point. And Cristiano Ronaldo comes in and is the savior again with two, has to be said, two great goals you know, to save the day for Ole. But it's becoming the case where it's like, not only is he saving the day, he's saving Ole's job. So it'll be interesting to see where you know, the United board see the future progression of this team under Solskjaer after what I'm going to imagine. Let's say hypothetically. You know, he, he rolls out the back three against Manchester City again, who romped to a 4-1 win against Bruges uh, this week. I just, if they lose 3-0, I just either, you know, they have to make a decisive choice and sack Ole, or like this, 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 <laughs> the cyclical nature of this club just restarts again. And th- there was an interesting tweet, and I, and I wish I had, you know, the person who authored it uh, in my brain so I could say, give, give them credit. But what other team, not like only in the big six, but like in the Premier League, would take Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as manager right now? I don't think any of them. Like, Nathan, you wouldn't have Ole over Arteta at Arsenal, right? Not at all. Not Especially not with the way Arsenal are playing right now. And if you think about it from that perspective, you know, like the fact that, you know, Brighton or West Ham or, you know... Even, I guess, like Newcastle, who have higher aspirations than Ole, clearly, that we're going to talk about. Like, and with Spurs just hiring Conte, I think, like Caleb said, like, this is a definitive moment in the Ole era. And I think it's, it's you know, even though they beat Spurs and they got a draw today, it's just another pillar coming down. And it just seems like Ole is scrambling purely for results and not for any sort of, like, cohesive structure to build something. 
Yeah, and I think if you saw the way United played yesterday, I mean, they were fortunate not to lose that game. Um, not only because of the quality and sort of rarity with which Ronaldo can rely on scoring those goals in terms of the position from which he hit it, not in terms of the actual goal itself, because obviously he scores late winners or equalizers all the time. It's sort of, you know, his prevailing asset, if you will. Um, you know, Atalanta probably deserved more than a point from that game. They created, you know, 150% of United's XG on the season, on the game. They were pretty even in possession. Duvan Zapata showed again why I think he's one of the most underrated strikers in Europe and has been for the last four or five years, uh, certainly since his initial move to Atalanta in 2018. But at the end of the day, I mean, United have something of a gauntlet coming up in their next five matches. They've got City, Watford, Villarreal, Chelsea, and Arsenal, um, you know, stretching into that first week of December. And I really struggle to believe that by the time those Boxing Day fixtures come around, you know, when they play what, five games in 13 days, that Ole is still going to be in charge. The only problem is the names that are being thrown around for United manager now are, you know, the likes of Gareth Southgate and Graham Potter and Eric Ten Hag, who is, I have to believe at this point, the most highly sought after manager in Europe now with Conte off the table, isn't going to go seeing as he just re-signed his contract at Ajax and they're in the middle of a, of a Champions League campaign of their own. So again, United seem to be uh, or seem to have, over the last six months, United have delayed the inevitable over and over again, while also investing hundreds of millions of dollars into players whose values are just going to continue to depreciate because they can't even get their way into the lineup. And I also wonder, like, you know, there was this whole threat, pretty overtly, of, like, you have three games. Well, let's play out a scenario, right? So they won the first game. They won so well, you might even say that a you know general rival had to sack their manager. Okay, that's not so bad. They draw in the Champions League, after, you know, in kind of dramatic fashion, and have to rely on stoppage time goals in the first and second half to draw themselves level. And then they come up against City. They're you know not main rival because Liverpool's the main rival, but they're you know derby rival. Like if they lose. 3-1 to City this weekend, what happens? Like, I'm just trying to figure out, like, what was the scenario where, like, did Ole have to lose all three games to get sacked? Did he have to lose two of the three games? Like, if he goes 1-1-1 one, one, and one over these three games, like, what does that mean? Like, it's very confusing to me what the, like, you know, what was the sword hanging over his head? Like, when was it actually going to fall? Or was this just, like, another example of, like, man, you pretending to act like, you know, they have a plan. But at the end of the day, like, even Ole knew like his job's pretty safe. I think a lot of it has to do with how much power Sir Alex Ferguson has over, you know, the managerial position and everything right now. And it seems like, you know, once Ferguson's support goes, that's going to be when Ole goes as well. And I think right now it's sort of like United are, are caught once again in like the United nepotism cycle. I'm going to coin it of like, you look at who like is their coaching staff right now. It's Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, it's Nicky Butt, it's Michael Carrick, it's Mike Phelan. It's all these guys who, you know, have come from or have been coached by Sir Alex Ferguson and his like learning tree. And of course, like if, if, if Fergie is like exercising his influence over the board, you know, particularly a board in transition with Ed Woodward, you know, stepping down at the end of the season, 
like he has a lot of the cards and it's going to be up to him and you know those people around him who make the choices at united to say hey like i'm sorry that like your coaching legacy quote unquote is you know not has not been like the most fruitful thing for this club but we need to make a change and that just hasn't happened yet as it is yeah i do we want to now jump around the champions league while we sort of wait for the decisive fixture this coming weekend which i fully believe city will win like five nil absolutely all right where do we start because there were a bunch of interesting games particularly today this champions league cycle has been weird in that the tuesday games this week were all pretty crap um but today's games were like all bangers uh which is kind of frustrating because i had far more free time yesterday than i did today but uh why don't we start off with Liverpool versus Atleti uh, in a game which saw Luis Suarez booed during the pre-match introductions. But Liverpool, uh, you know, courtesy of Felipe's second red card in two games, uh, ended up cruising to victory 2-0. It probably could have been more um, Jota and Mane with the goals. This means Liverpool qualify. They're through with 12 points from four games, 13 goals for, five goals against, on top of what was a pretty difficult group. So, uh, yeah, this bodes poorly for Atleti, who are not exactly in great fetter right now. No, I think I texted you guys this at full time. Atleti were, I think, the worst side to come play a game at Anfield. It's like them and Burnley have been like the two worst teams to face Liverpool at Anfield this season. This is domination. There's no other way to really put this. And it was certainly more dominant than the last time these two teams played. Now, that 3 2 thriller at the Wanda a few weeks ago. Uh, no Griezmann, obviously, for Atleti since he got sent off in the last conversation. And Atleti, it seemed like they were more focused at uh, getting under Sadio Mane's skin in the first half than they were at you know, defending or scoring goals. And Mane, you know, to their credit, Mane did have to come off at halftime with the yellow card. But by that point, I think the damage was done. And Atleti's discipline had once again got the better of, you know, any progress they tried to make in this game. And they were in a 2-0 hole, which seems to be their favorite scoreline against Liverpool uh, at certain points. This was another, I think, incredible performance from Trent Alexander-Arnold. You know, two assists. Defensively, he was superb against Yannick Carrasco and Joao Felix. Uh, Fabinho back in the team, back in the midfield. You know, this team is is, uh, is still like they're a great team without him, but they're one of the best teams in the world with him in that defensive midfield position, being able to shuttle around and cover for, you know, the likes of Trent and the likes of Shimakas in this game. I thought Chamberlain, you know, even though he had to come off with a bit of an injury, played a really, really excellent game at a high level once again, you know, showing that he's able to be an option. And Jota, you know, rounding into some kind of form, you know, that's two goals in, in three games for him. So all in all, it was a dominant result for Liverpool, probably could have been like four or five nil. And they are going to be cruising into the Champions League knockout stages atop this quote unquote group of death. But yeah, Caleb, perhaps you can speak to this more, but this is like turning into one of the more worrying starts of the starts of the season from Atletico Madrid under Simeone, who are conceding goals left and right uh this campaign yeah no atleti have been uncharacteristically poor on the defensive end this year and i think they're still trying to figure out what they're doing offensively and i think 
you know, he doesn't get a lot of the plaudits as, as you know, one of the famed kind of Atleti center backs. But I think the difference you see when Savage is in the team versus when you see Felipe in the team um, is pretty stark. I think Felipe, when, when he first came to Atleti, um, kind of surprised people with his quality, but his regression this year has been rather astounding. I think, you know, capped off with his tactical foul in Liverpool's own half um, as Mane was getting ready to go on the break, <laughs> even though there were like seven Atleti players back anyway. Um, I don't it was the know most they... Atleti thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like, Atleti are cheats. Like, this is what they do. They, they think they can just kind of like push you around. Um, I'm still not quite sure if it was actually like a red card, but like spiritually, it definitely was. So I'll, I'll let it slide. Um, but no, yeah, Atleti definitely have some issues. <laughs> on, on the Liverpool side that I will just say, Nick, I know you just gave, you know, Oxlade-Chamberlain um, or AOC, as I like to call him, um, a shout out. But you, you were really talking some crap about him before the game even started. So I would just like to say that Nick is covering his own ass right now um, because he was calling for this man to be like sent away. Um, let me pull the up the let me pull up the exact quote. Actually, um, whoa, 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 whoa. And, and my response, please. Let's quote, we don't do this to quote, anyone else on this podcast. Quote, I love Ox, but Liverpool need to sign a midfielder in January. <laughs> that message was sent at 3.13, 45 minutes before the game even started. And then Caleb responded, Caleb responded, bruh, the game hasn't even started yet. And Tiago is on the bench. Tiago did did come off the bench and he really put on a master class and just like he needs keeping to shave the ball. His hair. He's like Aang at the beginning of season three yeah, of Avatar, dude, where like dude. <laughs> man, oh, yeah, dude. and he's even he's wearing his Fire Nation garb right now. Yeah. <laughs> and he's yeah. even got like he's got like some little touch of gray in the curly hair too. Ooh. Yeah, he looks really interesting. But Ooh. I think you know <laughs> I will defend that with even though he had a great performance and you know he's been injury free knock on wood at the beginning of this campaign i think as with, with the departure of genie wijnaldum and you know the injury to harvey elliott and the fact that keita got injured at the weekend against brighton i think liverpool do need to be looking at you know some sort of midfield alternate perhaps like whether it be a dm or a traditional center midfielder just someone to you know call upon a more consistent name perhaps or even a rotational option uh, if you know injuries in the midfield to continue to be a problem this season, you know hopefully well, not. You know hopefully Tiago stays fit. Hopefully Kaita comes back quickly. But I think you know with the transfer window around the corner, it's something that Klopp and Co. and Michael Edwards uh, should be looking at. Speaking of Genie Wijnaldum, we may as well briefly touch on PSG Leipzig. PSG second in the group right now behind City, two wins and two draws. But they were very very fortunate to avoid defeat today against Leipzig. Leipzig. Uh, you know, missed a penalty early on. Genie Wijnaldum scored a brace, but uh, you know, despite Leipzig being, you know, this is their worst season right now in their in their last three years. PSG again were unable to find the winner, and this comes now with them having two draws in their last three games. Yes, they were without Messi today, but Pochettino is staring down the barrel of a 
very hot gun with someone who has itchy trigger trigger fingers and lots of money to spend. And I'm a little concerned that the Qataris. Might, yes. Yes. Um, I'm a little concerned that, that he's out of his depth right now. Uh, and given that Wijnaldum, a player who uh, reports came out last week that the South American players like refuse to include him in training because they're afraid he's going to like take their spot. Um, I'm, I'm a little concerned that the man management aspect of Pochettino um, has sort of gone a little bit here. I think it's just a thankless job, like managing this PSG team where it's like there's no, you know, structure. There's no rules and regulations, seemingly. And, you know, some of this does fall on him. But, you know, there are players on that team who, like, think they're bigger than God, you know, even though the performances on the field have not justified it. You know, Neymar has had a woeful start to the season. You know, Mbappe has probably been, and, and Di Maria as well have been like the two lone sparks going forward. You know, Messi is dealing with an injury. And even then before that, he hadn't been performing. So it's just like, there's so many moving parts with this PSG team. And there's so many superstars that Pochettino has to contend with. And, you know, no disrespect to, you know, Harry Kane and Hunman Son, but they are not superstars at the level of a Neymar or a Messi or an Mbappe. You know, so it's a learning curve for him. And that the fact that he's had this job since January and they have no real distinct style other than, seeming to do teams on the counterattack like that is to me like very worrying yeah one team that i think performed above expectations is ajax and i sort of mentioned them a couple of weeks ago when they destroyed sporting when sebastian hilaire scored his four goals meanwhile sebastian hilaire has now scored in seven straight matches he is the champions league top goal scorer and ajax are through to the next round after beating dortmund three to one today they are now four games without defeat in the Champions League. They've scored 14 and conceded two, one of which was a penalty and one of which was Remco Pasvir, the goalie, straight up just missing the ball. So Ajax right now are incredibly, incredibly legit. You know, they are approaching the top three in 538's, um, you know, power rankings uh, in terms of ELO, which I know is not the end-all be-all, and I know it's a very flawed system, but the addition of Steven Bergheis this has this past summer filled the big void. They've got you know two players who I think are poised for you know transfers of upwards of fifty million dollars at some point in Ryan Gravenberg and Anthony, and Dusan Tadic continues to to bang in the goals. He's been you know almost a goal and an assists per game player. Uh, in his 100-plus Ajax games now. So I know this group isn't the most daunting. It's Dortmund, Sporting, and Besiktas. But having seen Ajax now shut down Dortmund over the course of 180 minutes, I'm curious if you guys are willing to give Ten Hag, who's a managerial commodity of his own, um, you know, a little some more credit going into the round of 16. Yeah, I mean, 100%. This has been an incredibly impressive four games from Ajax already through to the next round have scored 14 goals, only conceded two. And as you're saying, Nathan, you know, Sebastian Hilaire has been the perfect Cleopatra to Anthony's Anthony because that, that connection has that was just a been good one. so incredible, not only in the Eredivisie, but at the highest level in the champions league. And Seb Holler for me, like has to be the player of the tournament so far, like him and Cristiano Ronaldo, just at least in terms of their statistical output, and this man can do a little bit of everything. You know, he's clearly got the strength. He's got the heading ability, but his technique 
which is not really on display. Aside from that one bicycle kick goal that he scored at West Ham, was not really on display in, in the Premier League. But he is, you know, an incredibly technically gifted forward who's got a little bit of everything in the bag and is just on fire at the moment. And, you know, Dortmund didn't help themselves with the uh, Mats Hummels sending off, you know, another questionable <laughs> referee. It shouldn't have been. There's, the ch- there's, there's no chance it's a red. I mean, it's barely a yellow. He... It's a dangerous challenge. He goes in with with the studs up, but he doesn't actually make contact with Anthony. And I hate to use stereotypes, but like that is such a Brazilian dive from Anthony. Like he rolls around the ground like 18 times um, and Michael Oliver refuses to overturn his initial decision. So anyways, it shouldn't have been a red, but, you know, regardless. But yeah, I think, you know, this is this this is a team that could go deep once again in the Champions League, depending on who they get in you know the round of 16 and even if they do get a tougher opponent like let's say that they get PSG I think they're far more organized at present than PSG and could pose Pochettino a lot of problems yeah I mean I'll give credit where credit to do the the reason that Barcelona were interested um in Ten Hag or or at least there were rumors before Koeman was that we might get him getting he is proving to be you know, with a good team, but having them play well above, above the love, I think, you know, we, you know, we now think of Seb Hilaire or Ducente. And I, I think, I think Cacs are always a fun team to support in the, in the Champions League. They've proven in time and time again that they can do damage even, even in modern era. And I think given the way things are shaping up, kind of as Nick mentioned, there are a lot of top teams like Eddie, like PSG, um, that are vulnerable. Um, even Man City in a weird way are potentially really vulnerable. Um, and so this is definitely shaping up, up to potentially <laughs> like, like Barca. Uh, this is shaping up potentially for fertile ground for their success. Uh, I think the thing that you have to commend, rivers. yeah, I think the thing that you have to commend Ajax in doing is, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, two years ago now, it seems like forever ago, they lost, you know, Matthias De Ligt and Frankie de Jong and, you know, a few other players to you know the greater heights quote unquote of european football but they have just restocked with you know players who look like have equally dangerous potential you know and and ryan gravenberch who is like an an incredible box-to-box midfielder someone that i think liverpool should definitely be looking at uh speaking of people that i think liverpool should sign and also uh urian timber who is only a 20-year-old defender. He can play both right back and center back and has been really impressive in this Champions League campaign. <laughs> the only question I have, and maybe like Nathan, you can answer this, but their goalkeeper, Remco Pasvier, <laughs> is uh, 37 years old and he looks every bit of 37 years old. Well, don't Look forget, yeah, don't forget Ajax, um, you know, are without Andre Onana and right. Yeah, yeah, when does he back? He's back. So he's yeah. back in training now, but there are questions about his contract status and uh, sort of when he'll return to play. But Ajax signed Pashvir on a free from Vitesse. Um, he's been getting most of the games over someone like Stecklenburg. And Ajax um, obviously have this fantastic academy that we've talked about at length. And Yuri and Timber is on the shortlist for the uh, is on the shortlist for the uh, the Golden Boy Award. Um, but their be- their next upcoming goalie in Calvin Razzi is only 18. So he's, uh, you know, he's not ready to sort of take the reins on an everyday level yet. So Pashvir, yeah. 
totally fine. And by the way, it's not just like Ajax are doing this in the Champions League. 14 goals for two conceded in the Champions League. 37 goals for two conceded in the Eredivisie right now, um, which is, uh, you know, some quick maths means that on the season, they are now 51 goals for four against, which is, uh, you know, truly some sort of FIFA on amateur numbers right there I mean, but listen i don't know remco pasvir i certainly haven't watched him enough to pass judgment on his quality but he looks like a eastern european extra in a michael bay movie and that is all i will say uh before we jump to newcastle another team without a manager right now is barcelona who courtesy of an ansu fati wonder goal uh beat dynamo kiev i don't think we need to talk about this match too much i don't think we need to talk yeah. about I don't think we need to talk about the 1-1 draw at the weekend too much because it really was more of the same. Um, although yeah, yeah. Depay did score uh, an absolute bungayer. Um, And obviously we sent our best wishes to Sergio Aguero, but let's talk about Xavi. It looks like the time has finally come. Yes, I mean, immediately following the, the Dynamo Kiev, Barcelona executives, but not Laporta, um, who, who initially he was going to go, but, but not do Ludicur. Um, in order to, to negotiate the, I guess, release of, of Chavi from his contract, um, from a contract, not, not, you know, whatever, whatever. Uh, <laughs> funny though, initial reports were suggesting that, you know, you know, like flew all the way down there, down there, this like nice meal or whatever that they watched the all side game. And then, then the all side owners were like, no, <laughs> you can't, you can't do this. Um. However, then more video emerged of Chavi. He said to the players. He gets Orla, Orla. Pretty much, he said in an interview that that Chavi gone. And then, and then Chavi, for the first time after sort of nine conversations, he said that you know talks have been on ongoing with Barcelona. So I don't feel be, you know, at, at the by the weekend. But it, it does look like the man is returned to, you know. Take, take what has always always been the plan, I think, for the past five or six years since since he retired, and maybe maybe one finally takes over. We can have, we can have a discussion about what that means. But that's the, the quick and dirty the Barcelona update day right now. Well, with that said and done, the last place that we will go today is to the Sports Direct Stadium at Newcastle upon Tyne, which very well could get a new name. I guess I'm realizing now that. They're probably due for a naming update. Maybe Saudi Aramco Arena. Yeah, exactly. It'll be something like that. Um, but Newcastle decided on a new manager, Unai Emery. The problem is, much like the last few months of my own personal life, Emery decided that he did not want Newcastle and turned them down to remain uh, in Spain, issuing what I would describe as a, a pretty heartfelt statement about why he didn't want the job. So Newcastle, after finding, finally figuring out, you know, what qualities and sort of what stature of a manager they think they could get, were immediately rebuked. Um, and obviously, I think the longer they wait, the less their chances of survival become. Um, they are, you know, fully in a relegation battle right now. They've got a difficult game with Brighton coming up. They have not won a game yet this season. They are just two points above 20th place Norwich and six points away from safety. I don't know about you guys, but I think house money right now is on Newcastle going down. And I'm not exactly sure who the next step down from Unai Emery is. 
I think it's got to be someone like Eddie Howe or even maybe, you know, a Sam Allardyce or a Roy Hodgson just to see them through to the end of the season and hope that they can stay up. But I think going back to Emery, and we'll talk about Eddie Howe too because he was the other name uh, linked on like their, you know, final two candidates and he's already interviewed for the job as well. But I think with, with Emery declining kind of this golden chalice of an offer from Newcastle, you know, unlimited finances, molding this sort of team in his image, um, having to work with, you know, kind of an unlimited scale of, of funds and things like that. You know, great stadium, one of the great footballing stadiums, you know, in Europe, St. James's Park. You can tell that part of his reservations for not taking over the job were because he was unsure about the structure of the club. And this is something that like when we were discussing the Newcastle takeover in our last episode, we were kind of alluding to is that, that there's a lot of hands in this Newcastle pot right now. And there is, you know, a lot of different, probably I would imagine a lot of different opinions as to what this team, you know, should look like both in the immediate term and the long-term future. So I'm not shocked that it took them this long to settle on Unai Emery as their target. And I'm not shocked that Unai Emery took a look at the situation and said, this really is not super organized. I would rather stay at, you know, a, a pretty well-run club like Villarreal, where he's currently still uh. in the Champions League and things like that. And getting getting to work with, you know, quality players like Dan Juma and Kapu and things like that, who clearly buy into his system. So, I mean, Eddie Howe, as far as managers who could, you know, salvage Newcastle from, you know, their current relegation dogfight right now is not a horrible option at all. I think he's kind of the victim of, you know, that Bournemouth relegation, which I thought was pretty inevitable, just considering, you know, the quality of that team and where it had gone to over the, the their kind of like last season or two in the Premier League. But he is a club builder. You know, he took Bournemouth from League Two and brought them up to the Premier League for four or five seasons, which is an incredible achievement. If you look at the scale of where Bournemouth ranks, you know, compared to even some other teams in the championship. So I think he'd be, you know, as far as, you know, a transitional appointment goes, I think he'd be pretty decent. Otherwise, wise, wise, they, they could scour the continent for another manager. You know, maybe the dude from uh, Granada, Diego Martinez, who got sacked, who looks like is kind of somewhat right now in the frame for Bielsa's job next year at Leeds, has got a relationship with Victor Orta or Ora, the Leeds chairman. Or it could be even. You know, they they try and pluck another manager from a club. Like, say, you know, hmm. I don't even know. That's the thing. Because like we were talking about at the top, you know, the longer this goes on, you know, the less and less managers become available or want to leave their current projects. So they are certainly, you know, flying by the seat of their pants at Newcastle. And it could be, uh, they could be flying so hot that they face the drop. Yeah, I mean, 538 have... Castle as the second most likely team to go down on after Norwich. Um, so I think this team in pretty dire straits, straits um, unless they can guarantee a, man, a manager, especially a manager who's probably slightly above entering in a Premier League relegation scrap that, that they're unlike win, you know, guarantees of some players that have pretty much decided that they want, want to join this project. I, I think it is a bit of a poison chalice. Um, and I don't know who's getting over. I was just I was just curious, and I was looking looking back at you know who uh, Manchester City hired after their their takeover. 
right right and then for like Sven Sven Gorkson at first and that, that didn't work especially well well and I had to go back to, to something a little more humble although still was still with experience and stature like Mark Hughes um, I don't think they get a sort of sort of international coach co- like you know like the equivalent of a service Sven Gorkson now I, th- I think they moved towards a more Mark Marquis type and maybe Eddie Howe it's the mold that is a more, more loud. I know Mark Marquis is, is Welsh but that they is could not. literally appoint Marquis. They could could literally have Marquis. Um, but I, but I do think this is just like it's like an incredible difficult. It'd be different if, if Newcastle were a solid, solidly mid to club that had that had to build on. But their foundations are made of sand, um, and their, their ground is Nick Nick Mend is pretty much ruined. Um, so this is just a disaster decision all around. And all I can say is I'm here for every second. second of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's I like think I have what, no the, sympathy whatsoever for for Newcastle or their fans or their players. I think the irony of all this, though, is that the ideal manager for this club is sitting in like a blue jacket at Goodison Park, right? Rafa Benitez, someone who knows the club, someone who can work within any means that you give him, is you know very amicable with whatever situation he's thrown into. Uh, fully committed, gives 100% of the effort, would be okay to go back down to the championship if Newcastle got relegated and certainly has the skill to get them back up. So I could see, you know, if results continue to decline at Everton and, you know, that situation starts to get a little more hostile, Newcastle could, you know, send the feelers out to Liverpool and say, hey, Rafa, do you want to, you know, come back and steady the ship? at St. James's Park again. No, that doesn't seem totally far-fetched to me. Yeah, I think regardless, it's going to be a project. And the last time Benitez took over, it was sort of with the implicit understanding that he would get to bring them back um, and sort of build them in his own image from the championship up. And I'm almost positive that at this point, um, you know, Newcastle are going down. So they need to find a manager who has both experience, but also potential and wants to be with this group for the long term. Because otherwise, um, you know, as far as investments go, when you buy a club that immediately gets relegated, it's not great for your money. Um, And while money might not be any object, the rules on spending in the championship are different than in the Prem. So that also affects the quality of players they can bring in. Like he brings back Rondon again. Right. Uh, for like the fourth stop on his club journey um, or his coaching journey rather. But yeah, I mean, no Emery at Newcastle, which, you know, I think is probably for the best for um, him. And obviously like, I'm I'm sort of glad that it shows that people can refuse offers that Newcastle make. Um, This is not the godfather, but uh, why don't we Michael Corleone of football is already at Spurs. So clearly not the godfather. Yes. And, uh, as we discussed sort of off the air, you can now try his new scent, defend your back three with Conte. Okay, yeah, uh, can you talk about that for a second? And then I have I have one last little question to ask you guys before we wrap up. But like yeah. the, the, the perfume advertisement <laughs> lighting photos that Spurs were releasing of Antonio Conte and like the promotional images, I found to be like incredibly hilarious. This like really just like ominous, you know, sexy, sultry, like only he's only like lit from like the left side. You know, phenomenal, phenomenal PR for Conte uh, and, and for Tottenham. But my question for you guys is if let's say like the three of us bought 
Newcastle, let's say. Let's say, yeah, let's say Newcastle. Let's say the three of us bought Newcastle. And you know, we had to appoint a manager from to get this club from the ground up. Who would you guys want to appoint? I think it's a fascinating question. Like obviously we can't appoint, you know, any of the math. We we couldn't go after Conte, we couldn't go after Klopp, Guardiola, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I would go, I mean, assuming like 10 hog is off the table. Like you're talking about people who would feasibly go to Newcastle right yes. now. Yes. No one, no one go to this close club. Where's, let's where's say that? that? Let's say yeah. we bought like, um, let's say we bought like Southampton. Bruce Arena. Um. <laughs> let's say we bought like a mid, a mid to lower tier Premier League club and we had to pick a manager. Not Newcastle explicitly. Ooh, Honestly, it's a real I, I, I think I think, I think I really would put in, in someone like David David. I think Moyes is the shout. Uh, I mean, I would have got I would go with like Scott Parker, probably. Um, if you if he's the if you think Parker, yeah, because because he's like, yeah he's like young. There's like more room to grow. He's around. young, but, charismatic, probably you know. It was sort of the victim of a Fulham team, fantastic looking, um, really sexy, uh, you know, <laughs> for the long term. And by the way, his born his Bournemouth right now, I believe, are like either first or second in the championship. I haven't checked them a little the bit. First, the first. I checked the yeah. championship today after Fulham smacked up. Yeah, 7 0. Uh, I saw that 7 0 win. 7 0. To be fair, Blackburn out of 10 men, but yes. I think I would appoint, like, if Benitez wasn't available, I think Benitez would be the ideal situation for any new owners to like go and appoint him. He's someone who I think is like the perfect manager for this kind of situation. I think like Scott Parker is a great answer. I also think like, could you get someone like Ernesto Valverde who hasn't been working for a long time? Mm-hmm. You know, someone of that who has yeah, Valverde pedigree. is available on a free right now too, but yeah. I think it's crazy that like they debated for weeks and they were like, Unai Emery, that's the guy. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I like Unai Emery. I think he's a great manager. But it's just like you debated for weeks. <laughs> Came up with Unai. Uh, poor guy, man. Anyways. Anyways, that just about wraps it up. We've got you know a busy weekend coming up before the international break. Uh, it seems like it's only been two weeks since the last international break, and that's because uh, it has. But nonetheless, that is the world in which we live with you know four breaks this way this year instead of three so we will be back to recap all of the action we've got west ham liverpool we've got the manchester derby we've got arsenal watford we've got you know the final match week in mls so many great things to talk about um and of course uh, barcelona vigo as well at the weekend but we will catch you next time for now i have been nathan strauss Reds. i've been nick Vinden. I'm gonna go buy some of that uh, Antonio Conte fragrance. Yeah, you know, if you could take if you could take Scott Parker's look, but Conte's vibe, I think you would have the oh you know, elite, the, the the truly elite, elite manager, elite manager. But we will see you all next time.